Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I'm honored to have my guest who is an expert in communications and writing. (laughs) (laughs) She's helped out quite a few different uh, corporations from Air New Zealand to Vector to the Hamilton City Council and more. She is also the author of the book Good Shit I've Learned. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And she's here to talk to me all about it. I'd like to welcome Shelley Davies. Hey, Reese. Thanks so much for having me. And look, I brought the book so I could show you. Oh, yes. Put that up to the camera. Nice, nice. <laughs> so before we get into that, I do I do need to know how, how you got into this industry because it's not the sort of thing that you grow up wanting to do, I'm sure. It's really not. In fact, I didn't even know such a thing existed. <laughs> I used to be a high school English teacher. Yeah. Um, does that make, is that a good thing? Is that a strike against me or, a, you know, how, how are no. English teachers in your esteem? <laughs> They're good. I'm actually interested in education <laughs> because obviously there's a, there's a lot of controversy around pay and Mm -hmm. in terms of well i I suppose you'd know in terms of how child poverty and people coming to school education is part of all kinds of really important things yeah yeah okay so how how did the 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 transferable thing of teaching to writing happen i suppose you incorporate writing a little bit with teaching so i guess that i've always been a teacher and always been a writer i didn't know that that was something that i could do in kind of corporate and government spaces i had just never thought of that as a niche and i've never seen myself as an entrepreneurial person either i just you know i didn't set out to, to start a business or run a business i was a teacher i taught at universities and high schools here and in the united states and I spent eight years with Te Wānanga Aotearoa, so really strong in Indigenous tertiary education. And then I found myself, you know, the universe just kind of um, put some things in place where I had to take a leap. So I found myself with only part-time work instead of full-time work. So I thought, well, I'll just try contracting or consulting as a um, proofreader and editor, not a writer, because I didn't know how to get anyone to pay me for writing, even though writing has always been my skill set. I got a master's degree in creative writing, like, 300 years ago <laughs> so uh, yeah, don't let the full the, the, the flawless skin fool you um <laughs> and so i had all th- all through that time i'd been writing um publishing i published short stories and poetry and all kinds of stuff like that always kind of had a plan to write a novel through my work i did a lot of research writing and a lot of a- academic writing and then i just happened to be in the right place at the right time because my nana asked me to stand on our hapu trust board so the governance board for my whanau over on great barrier island which is where i'm from i'm oh, Ngā- right. ngati wai um and we had hired a guy to write a document for us Now, this document sits under the RMA, the Resource Management Act, and it's um, an allowance that the Act makes for tangata whenua groups to uh, state the things that are important to them, the areas of of significance, you know, historical significance and cultural significance, their um, preferred way of being consulted with, um, their tikanga and values and things like that. And once that gets filed with council, it has some legislative weight under the Resource Management Act. Now, this guy had written one of these documents for us. We had hired this man to do it. And when I got to see what he'd written for us, I was like, holy shit, am I allowed to swear on here? Yeah, you can swear. (laughs) Your book's got a swear word in it. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, 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 no, no, you can swear. It's all good. I was really surprised because I thought it was going to feel all weighty and legislative. I thought it was going to look like a legal document and just be boring as fuck, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I read it, I was like, 
this is just like a person telling a story. Yeah. This is just in first person. This is who we are. These are the things that are important to us. These are the places that are important to us. If you want to work with us, here's how, you know, follow these steps. It was just so easy and accessible. And I thought my teenagers, teenagers would understand this. My 88-year-old Nana would understand this. It actually, we could relate to it. Whereas most documents that have legal weight, we don't feel like we can relate to them. No, that you might as well be speaking another language. Yeah. yeah. And so that was my introduction to something called plain language, which is what I teach in my business. That man, Victor Main, who was who had written the document for us, ran these writing trainings in businesses. Oh, right. And he'd been doing it for about 10 years. And we sat in a farikai in a, you know, the kitchen at the marae late one night. I had recently shaved my head because I might have been going through a small midlife crisis. And, <laughs> and he wanted to chat and I did not want to chat, but I was being polite. And then eventually he said, you know, I might have some work for you. And within a month, he had handed me his business. Wow. You didn't see that coming, did you? No, no. <laughs> yeah. He just, we were very well aligned in terms of values. You know, we're both very generous people. Both just want to do good and, and he wanted to take care of his clients. He wanted someone that would do the same thing. He wanted to move into other things. He wanted to move into innovative technologies for recycling and stuff. Completely unrelated, but yeah. he'd been investing in it for years. And he just wanted his clients to get taken care of. So he took me around and he introduced me to everyone. He was like, this is Shelly. She's amazing. And I was going, holy fuck, I hope I'm amazing because <laughs> I was scared to death. Um, but once I saw what he did, as, once I learned about plain language, right, because that, that was a new thing to me, this yep. less formal way of writing, more accessible. It's very powerful. And it's the opposite of everything we learn at university. Yeah. It's just deformalizing everything. So when you say plain writing, can you mm -hmm. give me an example? Because I'm I'm very interested in this. Yeah, yeah. So plain language. See, I came prepared with so many things, but not that. Basically, um, you know, like in emails, we think that we have to have a level of formality like in certain situations. Like if I was um Emailing yeah, Jacinda. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Since it's me, I'd be like, hey, girl. Um, but, you know, generally, yeah, if you're emailing someone who's high up in some organization, then you feel like there needs to be a level of politeness and deference, like, yeah. um, you know, I am writing to blah, blah, blah. Or you sign off with, should you have any concerns? Please do not hesitate. You know, that kind of formal yeah, businessy. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, no, you just say, um, you know, thanks. At the end of your email, you don't need to do all of that that formality. Where did that even originate from? Oh, people ask me that all the time. It's how long have we got? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Quite a while. It is a long form podcast, so we have got a while. Uh, there are a whole bunch of reasons why we do this. Yeah. The main reason, in my um, estimation, in my opinion, is that once things are put in writing, they feel like they're set in stone. And whenever you have to write something, you go, okay, I want to do this right. And so I'll go back and look at someone who's done it before and copy the way that they did it. So consequently, the way that we use English has changed drastically, even just decade to decade. Yeah. But you go back 100 years, it's different than we used to use it. Yep. Go back 200 years, it's vastly different. When the way that we speak English changes really rapidly, but our written language is slower because when things are in writing, they feel we feel like that sets the precedent of this is the way it must be done. And so since this is what reports look like, then I have to do one that looks like this. Yeah. And it's it, it, it's harder to change our writing style than it is to change the way that we speak because it just happens so organically 
when in our spoken language. Yeah. So how would you? How would you? So obviously, I'm guessing you get people that come to you and you have to try and teach them how to break yes. free of that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, it's quite a process because I have to untrain them. How long does that take usually? I I would like to get my hands on people for two full days to take them through an entire process from uh, recognizing what's wrong with what we're currently doing. Yeah. Uh, getting some insight into why. Why why we do it that way? What are the drivers? What what's making us act that way? Um, what are the influences? And then showing them how much better it is as a reader to read things that are written in plain language. And I know I haven't given you any very good examples of the difference yet. I'd have to pull something up and show you. That's all right. And then get them to practice it with some kind of exercises that I shape and then get them to um, eventually work towards a point where they can take something that they've written or need to write and just redo it completely. Just look at it in a whole new way and start from scratch. So we talk about two things, plain language, which is writing more like the way that we speak. Things like, here's an example, the difference between, a simple difference between saying, you know, oh, we recommend, you're writing a report, yeah. we recommend you do blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's what you should say. But what we've traditionally said is it is recommended or the following right. options are proposed. I'm like, proposed by whom? <laughs> the universe? <laughs> they, they just are. <laughs> and, and we don't think about that because we're yeah, so yeah. used to it. And that's one tiny example. But by yeah. the time you've got a whole document written in that voice, the cumulative load on the brain is much higher. We've got research around that that tells us that when things are written in an overly formal way, A, they use too many words, B, the sentence structures are harder for our brain to process, so the cognitive load is higher. That means, C, we're more likely to give up reading them. And that's why we don't read long, boring stuff. I wonder if that you could – so that would be applied to, like, CVs and stuff as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Email, mm. even emails. But then you obviously you don't want to go to the other extreme where you're just like, um, hey, like, shopper, lol. like you should just hire me because I'm awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So it's a matter of finding the balance, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So that it was a long story, but that's how I got into this, and that was seven years ago. Yeah, I've had um, a couple of rebrands or brand refreshes over that time. I've learned so much about marketing and brand. Well, your website is very savvy. <laughs> I love it. Someone told me this morning there's a typo in there. Is it? And I was like, where? Where is it? She said, I don't know. It shows up a bunch of times, happy with one P. And I was like, oh, no, no, that's just plain language. We just didn't want to waste letters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Such a dick. <laughs> And I'm so grateful. Was this someone you knew or just some random that said that? Oh, someone I met at a conference recently oh, okay. and um, she wants me to come do some work for a council down south. And um, I'm always so grateful for people to tell me that there are errors because I'm, I'm human. Oh, like, yeah. We all like, make mistakes. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to be able to take constructive criticism. Oh, my God. It's a typo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to fix it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I'm wondering if like in, the day in, in this day and age with spelling and grammar that can be corrected through Microsoft Word and stuff, people have inherently become lazy when it comes to proofreading anything uh quite possibly yeah. yeah yeah and and because there are so many formats of um written text now that we are relaxed about it you know like we are less picky about spelling and grammar on social media and on text messages and stuff like that so yeah. we we spend a lot of time communicating through the written word in formats where we are less worried about that yeah and so that can cross over into 
you know, you've written an email to your mum where you're not worried about it and then you write an email to your boss where you should worry about it and there's just a little bit of grey area, you know? Yeah. So what are some of the common things that people come to you, uh, complaints or problems that they have in terms of their writing, besides from the obvious being too um, complex with the language? Yeah, yeah. Um, really what people come to me for is they want to be more clear and more concise, perhaps more persuasive. And the solution to all of those things is plain language. Uh, if you're using plain language well, it tends to be uh, to use fewer words. Because uh, one of the things we're talking about, and I hate to get into grammar because grammar's not exciting. It's not very sexy. Well, I'm really. sure you can make it exciting. <laughs> I do like to dance around and play a lot of music in my trainings um, and some really sad jokes, but I just have to keep people <laughs> engaged, you know. Um, we're talking about the difference. One of the key differences is um, between the active sentence structure and the passive sentence structure. And most situations where people are talking about good writing, this is one of the issues that will come up we want to be more active because when we speak we speak actively mm. not at all saying like we're not demonizing the passive voice because the passive voice has all kinds of situations where it's useful and it's necessary but through our academic teaching we tend to take on the belief that in order to sound professional i have to write in the passive voice now let me give you an, ex uh, an example of what that sounds like because lots of us have heard of it but that doesn't mean we know what it is um, if I said, um, we're having a good day today, right? That's just the way that we talk. That's normal. Yeah. If I said, well, Reese, a good day is being had today by us. You'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. There actually are people that talk like that though. Yeah, but not, it's not normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, what did you do last night, Shelley? Oh, I went to a movie with my partner, right? That would be normal. Yeah. A movie was attended by my partner and I. Like, <laughs> if we spoke in the passive, we'd sound kind of vaguely like Yoda. Yeah. And, but we write that way. Like, we, we switch into, you know, let's say a report on a team building day. A good day was had by all and the following outcomes were achieved and blah, blah, blah. As opposed to, we all really enjoyed the day and we achieved these outcomes. Boom, boom, boom. And what the research tells us is that when you use that more natural voice, the, um, it's it's a stronger voice. It's more believable. It's more credible. We're more likely to trust it. Yeah. But I'd imagine the problem is, you know, in some of these professional environments is the stigma. You know, like, oh, you have to write this way. If you oh, do absolutely. not write this way, you are going to get in trouble. And this is why I have a job. Because I have a really, I'm, I'm particularly skilled at changing people's mind around that. Yep. And I have a lot of insight now into just what the fears and anxieties are and the reasons we have those perceptions. Yeah. So, do these corporations come to you or do you go and talk to them? And be like, hey. no, I don't know how to do cold calling, eh? They come to me. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's, that's good. I do put a lot of effort into making sure that I'm findable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Your your stuff comes up on my Facebook newsfeed all the time. Oh yeah, it's like called it's called remarketing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that you've <laughs> been to my, to my website or been you know yeah, checked yeah, on yeah. me once, I am just following you to the ends of the earth. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my favorite tool. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you do a bit of marketing as well? Do you train people in marketing, or is it solely just writing and communications? So, brand. I do. Brand. I do some work on brand now, okay. which is just more, and it's it's very much personal brand. Or a business that has a personal, you know, overall personality, yeah. Rather than like a big corporate brand, that's that's not my jam. I don't have any experience with that. What I know is, or what I've learned over the last seven years, is that I don't care if you call your business 
a business to business provider. Like I am a business and I'm providing a bit um, a service to other businesses. Yeah. You it's still human to human. I am yes. a human that needs to connect with the one human who is looking for a writing trainer. And as long as I can sell myself to them and connect with them, they'll go and do the work internally in their organization to get it across the line. But one of the real big misconceptions that we have in branding, I think, is that, well, I'm delivering to a corporate audience, so I have to have this kind of watered down, more conservative corporate brand. And I'm like, well, that means that you're just blah. And there's nothing to differentiate you from anybody else. Yeah. What would what about in the case where you're like speaking to, you know, an overseas corporation? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, depending on the country, it might have different mm -hmm. uh, culture, I suppose, different culture yep. and ideologies. Yep. So, you know, you could, would plain language still work, say, mm -hmm. if you're communicating with India or something, some company in India. So I recently had the privilege of rebranding the International Plain Language Federation. Sounds kind of Star Trek-ish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there is uh, there are plain language movements uh, in, I don't know, at least 20 countries. Oh, okay. Yeah. So wow. we talk about plain English, but it, the principles don't only apply to English. So is this adapted in writing now in universities and stuff, plain language? Is this taught? No. 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 Obviously, I <laughs> imagine you'd want it to be taught. Yeah, well, yeah. especially so, let's say I do a lot of work with engineers. I do a lot of work across the whole range of engineering disciplines. And some of those engineers, depending on where they studied, got taught to use plain language and they know how to write reports that are pretty clear and concise and to the point and just really good for clients to read, you know, yeah, yeah. people who are non-technical. That's a, that's a minority. And so it very much depends on who the professors, the instructors are. Right. If they've got a preference for plain language, that's what they're going to teach. Then I get plenty of others who are like, I just spent five years or six years or whatever at university learning to write like this. And now in my first year of work in an organize, in a company, you're telling me to forget all of that. <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure writing wouldn't be the only industry where that happens though. No, 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 not at all. Um, yeah. Because so, the, the, the world's moving so fast and things are constantly changing. What I wish they did at university, um, and because I've got a strong academic background, like I, I love universities, I love all the time that I've spent there and, and teaching at tertiary level. Um, but what I wish that they did when they teach writing skills is say, these are your academic writing skills. These are the conventions that are required within an academic space. If you want to publish academically, if you want to pre um, present and submit papers to academic conferences and research conferences, these are the conventions to use so that your work will be accepted. And then when they gave us our degree, our diploma, whatever, I wish that they said, now stop doing that shit. Because when it's just human to human, most of those conventions get in the way. Yeah, they do. They really do. But we are trained that that is good writing. Yeah. All I want them to do is add one more word, good academic writing, and then problem solved. Yeah, because if you think about like back in Shakespeare days, you know, if you talk like that now, people would think you're a weirdo. Totally. Yeah. And so you get all the grammar Nazis, and I would call myself a grammar Nazi in recovery, who is like, this is the rule. I got taught this rule about where commas go and where they don't go. Do you or go on Facebook and stuff and, and hit people up when no. they speak? 
<laughs> okay. Fuck no. No. <laughs> no. Some people do that. Yes, that's why I'm a grammar Nazi in recovery. Yeah. In recovery. Okay. But if you think about it, those people are going, the language can't change. We're ruining the language. Rah, rah, rah. And I'm like, well, let's go back to Shakespeare's time, which was not actually that long ago in the history of the language. He um, spoke and wrote in modern English. Yeah. Not our modern English. No. A much earlier version, but it was still modern English. Before that was Middle English. Which got nothing to do with Middle Earth, by the way. And before, well, it's a real thing. There's literature and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can even, it's, it sounds like like when that Avril with his shortest thought of the Dracht of Marcheth Pear said to the Rota. Like, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, it's talking about the weather. Sounded awesome though, right? Yeah, yeah. And before that was Old English, which is like Latin and, and unrecognizable to us. So if people now today are like, you are ruining the language, I'm like, well, then at what point should we have drawn a line in its development? Just because in your lifetime, this is the way English has sounded and behaved and felt and, and these have been the rules. Clearly, it's a living language that changes. And I imagine that would be the case with all languages. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But we really, you know, as hum humans like rules, we like our rules. And I also think we, the older you get, the more stuck in your ways you get. Nah, not me. Yes, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm finding that with myself. As I get older, there's things I'm like, no. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how, you know, you're starting to get older because you, you look at the new kids and you're like, oh, no, that's not the way it should be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They're like, kids these days, they don't know how to write proper sentences. I'm like, well, yeah. they don't know how to write the sentences that you learned how to write, but they are writing sentences that are appropriate today. Yeah. Yeah, and it just it changes. And it just depends on whether we're willing to roll with that or not. Yeah. So consequently, I have a lot of fun going into tons of different organizations, meeting amazing people like you. You know, you said you learn a lot through doing these podcasts. Oh, uh, yep. You've I just taught me a so lot much. just in the last, I don't know, 20 or five <laughs> things, so minutes. Things you wish you didn't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and I just get to work with amazing people and um, and take them through this journey. Because do you speak TDO as, as well? I, I could, can hold a basic conversation in TDO okay. I'm not fluent at all. Right. No. Okay. And I, I can speak a little French. Okay. And, yeah. Have you, but can you, can you read and write it, though? And can you see the difference between academic and plain language with French and nah. TDO? No, nah, I don't have. Um, oh, look, in TDO, uh, I could definitely see a difference between your more classic classical te reo Māori and the the modern way that, that many of us use it now, which yep. the traditionalists are less comfortable with, and I understand why, um, because te reo Māori is the vehicle for our culture. You know, if you want to learn about our culture, the language helps you to do that. And and so much of whakaaro Māori or the way that we think is encapsulated in those kupu and those words and the thinking behind them. Yeah, but I could imagine, though, the same thing would probably happen with English that will eventually happen with TDO where you'll have it will start to change and then you'll have people that'll be like, no, this is the traditional way of doing it. There are definitely people who are very, um, very uh, rigid, firm. Yep. Yeah, well, rig I'll, I'll say firm. <laughs> rigid it's a better word. Um, on, on the way that te reo Māori uh, should be used, on the correct usage, the correct, um, you know, sentence structure, syntax, sac yep. syntax, things like that. And I wouldn't argue against them because. Um, because the further away we get from those native speakers that we used to have and the way that they used to use it, we don't have as many records of that. Like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm definitely not expressing it well. What I'm trying to say is 
I'm more supportive of us not fucking with Te Reo Māori yeah. as, okay. as we are with English. There we go. There we Plain go. English. Plain yeah. English. And thank, I just got that clear in my mind. That's what it is. Yep. English is a bastardized language. It's a language that has developed through contributions from many, many different cultures and languages. Yeah, yeah. Te Reo Māori is less so, much, much less so. And so that's why I think that there is um, some justification for holding on to it the way that it should the way that it has been traditionally. I'm wondering though if that will hinder in terms of translation. Like if you're trying to, yeah, yeah you know, like if English language keeps changing and let's say Māori, uh, te Māori stays kind of the same, mm -hmm. then there'll be certain problems with translations. The reason why I'm talking about this because my partner's Indian. Okay. So she speaks Hindi. Yeah. And I've tried to learn some Hindi words and usually it's it's because it works backwards. Okay. Sort of like Yoda. Um, <laughs> so the adjective uh, comes first okay. rather than uh, second. So sometimes when she's translating stuff, it doesn't make sense. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Um, and it can and, and, and it can end up with communication, you know, problems mm -hmm. and things being misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I would imagine that would be a problem mm -hmm. with a lot of different languages though because I know Hindi's not the – the the only one that does it. I think Mandarin is the same. Ah, oh, all you know, different languages use different sentence structures and different syntaxes. It's, it's that's why translators are so important. People if, who have that knowledge. If there was a magical wand out there and you could learn every single language in the world, mm -hmm. would you want to know every single language? So you could just assess all the differences and the similarities uh, between all see, the different that's, languages. That's so funny because as soon as you said, would you want to, I thought, yeah, I actually really would, be, but it's got nothing to do with language. It's got to do with the fact that I really love people and I would love to be able to truly connect with people everywhere I go and not have a language barrier. So thinking about, I mean, I'm interested in linguistics. Yeah, yeah, because I think I think that's a big problem that affects the world, particularly like in this day and age. still Because there's, I think there's like 6,000 languages or something in the world. <clears throat> no idea. <laughs> and I would imagine there'd be still massive communication problems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But humans have massive communication problems. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Even when we speak the same language. Yeah. So that's that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, right yeah. We all bring filters and lenses and, um, yeah. So that kind of segues into communication. Mm-hmm. So when you, in terms of verbal communication, so mm -hmm. what are some of the, the techniques or what you advise people mm. that come to hear your expertise and see and I feel out of I, f I feel out of my depth there because I don't have any specialist ex you know I don't have well, any do, when does, well if someone comes to you mm -hmm. and they start talking to you yep. can you immediately pick up on okay they're doing this or doing that like because when you say communication yeah what are we talking um, uh, we are talking so much more than words and language we're talking body language. We're talking tone. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Okay, so it's very broad. Yeah, and, but I, I'm not a communication. I'm a, I'm a comms specialist in terms of organisations needing to communicate, communicate messages to right. to their staff, to their clients. But in terms of a communication and a specialist in the area of communication generally, no. Would you want to get into that at some point? Possibly. Is it something that would interest you? Oh, look, I love, I love learning about all those kinds of things. I don't have some desire to move into, you know, to slightly change the industry or, or the, the direction of my career, but I'm really, really interested in the psychology behind communication and the way that yeah. we interact with, with messages, whether the message is visual, whether it's in text, whether it's verbal, you know, so that, that aspect, I, I think that I will always 
continue learning about because I'm just so intrigued and it, it really kind of gets into the psychology of it. Um, I'm quite intrigued with the neuroscience of how we interact with text. In fact, I'm very intrigued about that. We, If we want to write well, we need to turn off all of the things that we think about as writers and we need to remember what the experience is of being a reader and write in the way that readers want to read stuff. Mm. And that's really hard because we've got, I call it a writing switch in our brain, a writer switch. When you turn that on, you remember all the things you've ever learned, all the shoulds and should nots about writing. Um, and your reader self leaves the room. Do you find as a creator, you look at everything through a negative lens though? Because like, I used to do music <laughs> and I find every time that I did music, I would only see the flaws in it. So I'm wondering if with your own writing, like say when you were writing your mm. your book and stuff, mm. you look at it and you're like, oh, you go back and you rewrite it because you hated that sentence or that paragraph, <laughs> then go back and rewrite it again. Yeah, I'm just trying to I'm trying to find a really honest answer because it's not. I because I get paid to critique people's documents and to rewrite documents. Yep. I am less likely to look at something with a critical eye unless I'm being paid to do it. I kind of can't be fucked. Having said that, I could easily read something. Um, someone showed me a PowerPoint the other day and I saw a typo on the first slide and I was like, oh, and it just made me not want to look at the entire rest of it. I wasn't being paid to critique that. <laughs> or was it just like a friend or somebody? You, yeah, you know? a, a colleague was just showing me some material that happened to be in a PowerPoint. And, yeah. Um, so when you see these errors, what is the most common error you find? Apostrophes. Uh -huh, see, right. that was a really easy answer. Yeah, that was straight away. Yep. Apostrophes. Yep. Can you give me an example of? <laughs> yep. Uh, a classic um, classic social media troll, you know, they were like, you're an idiot, and they spell it Y-O-U-R, and it should be Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. Ah, right. And we're like, no, you're, you're an idiot. idiot. <laughs> <laughs> in in the UK, there is a, there's a website called the Society for the Protection of the Apostrophe. I think it's yeah. like one guy, but you can sign up and, <laughs> and join the society. There was uh, something on social media a few years back like he was called the apostrophizer and he was a guy in the uk that yeah. even had like this special long tool and he would sneak around at night and remove apostrophes from signage where there shouldn't be one or add one in if there was one missing so i am not the only person in the world that cares about this in fact there have been a couple of little kind of studies done that suggest that when people get their apostrophes wrong we we doubt their level of intelligence and we, that can be extrapolated across to or well, maybe the information you're giving me isn't actually correct really hmm. Would there be? Would you often find people that spell their T H E I R and T H E R E mm -hmm. wrong, and two T O and T O O yep. all the time? Yep. I'll I'll, uh, I'll admit I've I've done that myself. Grace, <laughs> you mean you're human? Holy fuck! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I can I can totally overlook it because I'm like whatever. That's that's less important to me. But I do know that people can make assumptions about your professionalism or your credibility based on whether or not there are errors in your writing. Yeah. But then I'm wondering if that's the same case in terms of when you're talking about plain writing and, you know, the professional academic writing. So, that's a good question because there's really clear research that tells us that, no, actually, you come across as, as more credible, more trustworthy, and therefore that that translates into more professional. If people can understand what you're saying mm. and you're not mucking around and make and waffling and making them read loads of shit. 
Yeah. Right? So you will still find some people, and I do believe they're the minority, who will look at something that's written in an old-fashioned formal way and something that's less formal and it's in plain language and go, oh, no, no, this looks more professional. So you'll still find people like that. But what they're talking about is, for me as a writer, this comes across as more professional and that's the way I think we should be writing. Yeah. As a reader, given the choice, they will choose the easy one every single time. Yeah. Mm. So you kind of want to ha- like say if you're writing an email, you mm. don't want to make it too long. Nope, not at all. You want to get straight to the point, I guess. In fact, and I you know I can't give too much away because I might have an online email course that people can sign yeah, up to. Yeah, but ultimately, ultimately we should just be using headings and bullets in our emails. We shouldn't be fucking around with sentences and paragraphs because people yeah. skim read. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. 98% of us. Do you do, um, do you fix up people's CVs and stuff as well? Not CVs, nah. I'm too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I was joking. I'm serious. No, I know if, you're serious. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> if you ask Google for CV writers in Hamilton, New Zealand, I come up. And I, I was like, what is going on? Because I kept getting these phone calls where people were like, oh, how much does it cost for a CV? And I'm like, oh, I don't do CVs. And they're like, but your website says you do. And I was like... I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you can tell me where on my website it says that I do (laughs) CVs. And it's not my website, it's Google. Because I once wrote a very well-written article about how to write a CV and Google has SEO'd that and taken that to mean I am a CV writer. So you wouldn't want to make that part of your No, no, because I fucking hate them. I mean, but, okay, let's say if I needed my CV <laughs> updated, would you help me though? <laughs> I would gladly give advice and I would point you to my favorite tool, which is called EnhanceCV.com. EnhanceCV.com. Yep. So, like enhance without the E on the end, just a V instead of the E. Yep. And that's the only way I'll do CVs for people. It's very graphic. It's very visual. And you want to keep it to one page, ideally, if not I mean, two at max. Yeah. Well, you're trying to consolidate a whole bunch yep. of information into it. Because I know, with, particularly with employers, if they're searching through a CV, they, if they're going, you know, 100 people have applied for one job, they're yeah. going to be skim reading. Interestingly, I, um, so all, I'm do- all I do is give advice based around what I know of reader behavior, the psychology of interacting with text and neuroscience and how it influences the way that we process information in- that's written in text. And from what I know about those things, I started giving a bit of advice around CVs and cover letters. And somehow I've developed this huge following of recruiters on LinkedIn. And they love it. They're all like, yes, this is what people need to do. And I was like, oh, good. Lucky I, lucky I was right. Yeah. Are you I, worried at all about automation? Nah. Nah? Nah. There's, they don't th- th- you don't think it'll take plain language for you and be... No, there are more and more tools around to help people write better. I mean, Grammarly is even just recently they've um, released their supporting tone. So they'll kind of filter for tone and give you a heads up if they think there are tone issues. And that's good. Grammarly is a great tool. Another one is Hemingway, the Hemingway editor, which is available online as well. And that helps you to write in plain language. It's a beautiful user-friendly tool. And um, there's a company that I know of in Canada called ScriptSwap, and they uh, I can't even tell you exactly what it's how it's going to work because it's still very much in development. But it's going to help people. It's it's going to be a tool or an app that will help people incredibly with translating things from um, more traditional formal language into plain language. That it's years of investment in that particular tool, and. 
all of those things are going to be great resources to people, but I just don't believe that any of them will fully replace someone like me who can come in, take yeah. in the whole context, take what I know about the people, all of the, cause you know, I've got the soft skills that, that the AI is not going to be able to replicate completely. Now I know that AI is incredible. Um, but I don't think AI is ever going to be able to have my level of empathy. That is true. And actually, as I was asking that, I was thinking, man, do people actually write worse now before, you know, computers got smarter and the internet was around? People, uh, lots of people would agree with that statement. Yeah. You know, because of like Twitter, you've got 150 characters. We so are, we we are abbreviate. Much, well, yeah. <laughs> we are much worse at typing now <clears throat> than we used to be before everyone did it. Typing on a computer or typing on a phone or Just any type of typing? Like touch typing. Yeah, you know, that used to be a specialized skill that people got taught. It's not anymore. And yet we all spend time on a laptop or a computer. Yeah. But we don't necessarily learn how to touch type anymore. So there's actually a huge room to increase productivity if people actually learned how to type properly. Do you do you teach people at all uh, to write no. On physical paper or anything? Or, or Hell no. Because you know how like the uh, kids these days, they don't even have to learn, you know, how to write. I just want to call you granddad because <laughs> you said kids these days. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a grandmother, by the way. So, oh, okay. what if? I'm an uncle. Yeah. Yeah. At some point. Yeah, I'll probably be a grandpa. But, um, yeah, because a, a lot of kids are obviously learning in school on iPads and computers and stuff as mm. opposed to well, yep. when I was a kid. For sure. You know, you had to write out your ABCs in your little stationary booklet. Mm. Yeah, I can't credibly speak on that. It's outside my area of expertise. I do know that there are fine motor skills that kids need to develop because it impacts on the way that our brains develop. So we yeah. definitely, it's definitely important to um, to not lose a bunch of the skills that are involved with handwriting. Um, but I don't. Yeah, my knowledge doesn't extend much past that. Mm. My, I've got the messiest handwriting on the planet. I've got oh, mine's terrible as well. Well, there are there are some findings that would suggest that it's a sign of intelligence. So should we just own that together? Oh yeah, there high we go. Five. High five. <laughs> there we go. I'm um, going to play that back to my partner. And and since we've had <laughs> physical interaction, so I've got new um, business cards because I just refreshed my brand recently. Oh, sweet. You need to give me one. And, well, they've all got different messages on them. So I'm using them a little oh. bit kind of like tarot cards, like let's see what the universe wants you to know. Shall we see what the universe wants you to know today? Yeah, sure. All right, let's do this. I didn't bring any of the writing-related ones I brought because um, I used to just be Shelley Davies writing and training. Right. And I recently was like, actually, I'm more than that now. I, I uh, so it's writing, train, writing, joy, and badassery is my new brand. I love it. <laughs> um, and so these are these are more of the cards that have messages about joy and badassery. So okay. you have to pick one. All right, just one. Yeah. All right. What does it say? I'm scared. Messy and amazing. Ah, are you messy and amazing, Reese? Yeah, my <laughs> partner would probably agree with that because I'm very messy. And there could be really joyful, loving ones like, what if you could? That someone just goes away uh, and like, oh. So do you get everyone who comes in to meet you, you get them to do this? I've only had this for a couple of weeks, but I like I just spent a day at a conference in Auckland yesterday, yeah. uh, um, Wahine Māori and Pacifica Entrepreneurs Conference yeah. that I was lucky enough to present at. And yeah, every speaker and everyone I could get my hands on, I'm like, pick, pick one, pick, pick one. one. Everybody really, really, really wants the sweary ones. And I've left all the sweary ones in the car. I've got one that just says, well, fuck. <laughs> and people <laughs> love that. There's a, isn't there a study that say that Oh, something that indicates if you swear, 
Like it actually helps you to relax or calm yourself so down? I might be familiar with some of the studies. All right, because you have to understand a little bit about my story. I was raised Mormon and it was only seven years ago that I left the Mormon church. Now, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any issues with the Mormon church. My entire family is still active and they are all amazing people. Um, but it means that I didn't swear out loud for 38 years of my life, except for this one time where I told my ex-husband to shut the fuck up and it felt so good. But I did swear in my mind a lot. And Mm. so as part of this journey has been really stepping into my true, full, authentic self, I'm like, well, if I think swear words, I'm going to say them and I use them a lot. Um, And so what what was the question you asked me? I started off on my little tangent about (laughs) swearing. Uh, Yeah, well, in terms of profanity, I guess. Uh, I can't even remember what I asked yeah, now. No, it kind of just segued there. Yeah. But it was, and I suppose, in terms of do you do you dissuade people from doing that in their writing or, oh, or communication? See, so I think that's a question of professional relationships and the way that you want to interact with people rather yeah. than a writing question. I sometimes I get all philosophical sometimes, and oh, I'm yeah. wondering, like, how did swear words come about? Uh, Who invented them? <laughs> like, why are they a thing? You know? Oh, I wish I could remember the question because I was leading to a really good answer. But basically, I hadn't hadn't sworn all that time, and so I, um, what I find now is okay. So here, so they're swearing in my brand, right? They're swearing on my website. Yeah, which I like. <laughs> well, that's what I'm finding is that there are absolutely people that don't like it. They're not my clientele. They're not my market. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to have a brand that everybody likes. If I do, it will be a forgettable brand, and I don't want a forgettable brand. Yeah, like I can kind of relate to you because I I used to be a Christian and okay. stuff, so mm-hmm. yeah. I can relate fully on this front. And you know, you're taught not to swear. And to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so what I I had this theory a few years ago when I launched kind of my the first brave version of my brand that had some swearing and and was more authentically me, and I had this theory that. In business, usually, we meet people for the first time, we're very polite. Yeah, we put our best foot forward. You're just careful not to offend or be too anything. You're just kind of mild and careful and cautious. Yeah. And then, you know, you do some work together. Maybe it's negotiating, signing a contract, whatever, and you, you, you ease into a business relationship. And eventually, when you get more comfortable, you might swear together. You might go out for drinks together, whatever. But over time, we get to a point where we're comfortable to just be more of ourselves. Yeah. And what I wanted to know when I launched my brand about three years ago was, was, what if I just start at that point? Mm. What if I skip all of that best foot forward, polite, blah, 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 yeah. and just go, well, fuck, let's have a beer. Yeah. And what I found is that people approach me like they know me, like they're really comfortable. Like I'll get a phone call from a general manager in a government department who's like, oh, Shelly, my staff are driving me insane. Can you rescue me? Can you rescue our reports? I'm like, yes, I can. And this is someone I've never met. Yeah. We don't do the polite niceties. We just get straight into the good stuff, and I love it. Yeah, because I think it it can hinder people in a way. Mm. You know, you're trying to Mm. almost like clenching on to something. Mm -hmm. That means that there are people who will not want to work with me, and I am fine with that because there are enough people who do. Yeah. I do think there's probably a balance, though. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think every single – like, when you're talking, not every single second sentence needs to have a – the word fucking it. I can't fucking just say fucking any fucking time. 
<laughs> yeah, well, like, you know, there's a big difference between, like, say, if you're getting angry, I'm like, oh, I'm fucking over this, as opposed to, oh, I'm just going to go to the fucking dairy and buy some fucking bread. <laughs> like, I remember uh, the question. The question was about, wasn't there some research? Oh, yes, yes. And because I had this journey very consciously about swearing, which my family just, they hate it. And I, you know, I'm aware of that, but I just, I love it. Um, so there has been some research done around pain that you um, have a higher tolerance for pain when you swear. Like, if you swear while you're in pain, you can handle it longer. You can handle it. Yep. Okay. Yep. Or the pain is reduced somewhat or something like that. There is some research that suggests there is a correlation between intelligence level and people that swear. So, the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to swear. That's what one of the, there's some research that shows that. <laughs> and and that we are more likely to trust people who swear because we, because um, we don't feel like they're hiding things. They're being more fully transparent. More authentic. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's where we were headed. That's so glad we got back to that. Yeah. But then I, I'd imagine that a lot of religious people would probably be like, no. Yeah. 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 So you've got to. You yeah, have to contrast. know your audience. That's anytime. Yeah. Anytime yeah, yeah. You have to know your audience. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I think it, the only point I feel, and I, I don't know, you can validate if, <laughs> well, tell me if you agree. I think it's only bad if you get to a point where. You're not actually in control at all of something. Like, say if oh, you yeah. if, if, if you're yeah. like in front of like, or you're babysitting like a three year old or something. <laughs> you know, you're babysitting some kids and you're constantly swearing. I'm like, uh, you might want to yeah. try yeah. and cut oh, yeah. back. If I believe that that's part of being a mature, functioning adult in the world is knowing what's appropriate in different contexts. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Totally. The C word is not appropriate in lots of contexts, and that's not one that I'm but comfortable here's the, saying. here's the thing. Like, in Europe, like, I know in the UK, because I'm half British, so mm-hmm. I've been there a number of times, they use that word a lot. I know. See, so it's very cultural. Yeah. Yeah. So, I have- Yes, let's I talk about my, your book. Well, I have my book, The Good Shit I've Learned. Okay. Right? And what is the good shit that you've learned? It, it's exactly what it says. People <laughs> kept going, how did you get to be you? You know, this you that we see that's so confident and loving life and blah, blah, blah. I was like, I don't think I'm anything special. I'm just, I just have learned some good shit along the way. And I was really hesitant to write a book because I didn't have anything new to say. And then I read a book by Amber Ray called From Worry to Wonder. And there wasn't really anything new for me in that book, but it was still an enjoyable read. Yeah. And what I especially loved about it was the voice was just like sitting down with a wise girlfriend or like one of my sisters, because I've got three older sisters who I adore. It's like sitting down with a group of wise girlfriends and just talking about the good stuff. You know, you talk about this thing happened the other day and, oh, my gosh, I realized, you know, just those moments of awareness and stuff. And that that book that I read was in a very just easy, relaxing, relatable voice. And I was like, well, if I don't have to have something new to say, and I really enjoyed reading something that's just written like a conversation, then I could just write down a whole bunch of the kind of good little lessons that I've learned over the years that have helped me Mm. get to a point in my life where I'm confident and strong and and happy generally. It doesn't mean I'm not messy, you know, messy and amazing. That card is for me very much as for anybody else. Uh, you know, I still cry and have meltdowns and whatever, but in general, I'm a, I think my life is amazing. And how did I get here? Lots of just little moments of learning. And I thought if I just wrote a bunch of little stories and acknowledged who I learned the things from, mm. that would be cool. And so that's all that is. That It's not like a book you have to read from beginning to end. When people do, they say it takes, you know, 45 minutes or something. Other people just say, oh, I keep it on my desk and when I need a little perk up or go oh let's get some shelly goodness or something which is just crazy to me so what's the process of writing a book 
So how do you uh, even how do you even get to the mindset of okay I want to write a book and then how do you decide how many pages yeah. you want to have and the no, chapters and I am the wrong person to ask unfortunately but you've well you've written one more book than I so have so I can tell you how I wrote a book well okay. I've got two books oh you got in two front books okay what's the so the book? other one is called it's and this one doesn't have swear words in it engaging with Māori for success in business mm. so this is exactly what it sounds like it's um, about business contexts and let's just become a little bit more cultural aware so that we don't fuck things up so is that is that mainly is maori mainly the audience for that is that no um, it's it's for specifically for non-maori who want to work with oh, maori and want okay. to be able to do it more safely feel more confident about the way that they work with us right so, how, so okay how did so you how did you one, how did you come up with the idea to write that so i didn't come up with an idea to write a book i have a training that i will that i do occasionally deliver to organizations and um it's a couple of days worth of me just helping people get really comfortable with some basic te reo maori and um and learn a little bit about the way that we think and see the world and learn about what are the right questions to ask in any situation because mm. you have to know to ask questions because every iwi and every rohe, every region is different so yeah. for us as maori if we are going to go and meet with another group of maori somewhere we ask them questions to make sure we get it right but non-maori think that they should know well it's probably a ignorance thing oh yeah no no yeah, totally you I mean, don't that, know what you don't know exactly and that's exactly what this book is about mm. so the way that this book came about is that i had a training i was like well i need um you know i like to have a workbook at my training this was intended to be a workbook and then after i started using it at the training i started getting phone calls from like statistics new zealand and like the national library and stuff going how do we get a copy of your book and i was like okay i guess it's a book now <laughs> wow yeah, like, I'm sorry, but that's that. But that's good, though. It just it, it's naturally fallen into place. <laughs> so I um, got an ISBN for it, which you can get from the National Library. It doesn't cost you anything, so that yeah. makes it an official book. And I got so. Can you give me? Printed. Can you give me one example from the book of of uh, how how to integrate okay. or do business with Maldi? So, um, oh gosh, let me just turn to a page. So, like, there's a chapter that's about having an intergenerational view that we, although we focus on needs today, we are always aware of both the past and the future and what we've learned from the past and the impacts of what we do today and how it's going to impact on our future. We see ourselves as as kaitiaki of certain things for our our mukupuna. So even the ones that aren't born yet, our grandchildren, we're yeah, always yeah. thinking about the responsibility that we have to those future generations. So like that's one tiny little example. If you think about working with us and we're like, no, you can't um, dig in this place or release your wastewater into this place or, or direct your stormwater into this place. We're not just thinking about the here and now. We're thinking about generations to come. Hmm. So just just being aware of that. And then another thing, um, we have a, so this is page 28, we have a principle called kanohikitea, which means being seen or the seen face. And that's a really important principle to us that, and that's why we attend tangi. That's why, you know, when your sister's auntie's cousin's cat, and that's rude, but you know what I mean, yeah. dies, you go to the tangi yeah. because... Um, and, you know, I've been raised by a Māori father and a Pākehā mother and a Māori father who didn't know much about his his Māori history, like, or, no, that's not true, uh, much mātauranga Māori or much Māori knowledge. In yeah, way. well, I know I know quite a few Māoris that are the same. Yeah, and so um, I would, I used to kind of sometimes look at people and be like, why are they 
man, they just take so much time off work all the time. And, yeah, it's really easy for people to not understand what's going on. But this principle of being seen, that's that's one of the best ways that we can show support to someone or to a kaupapa that's going on is to show your face. Mm. And you might not know those people intimately. You might not have ever met the person that passed away, but you show your face to be of support to the things that are going on. And it's not the same as sending flowers or sending a condolence card or something uh, this kanohikitea is a it's a principle that you know it's, it's you embedded feel, in our culture do you feel there's like a lot of misperception with maori oh, yeah. like how it's portrayed in the media and everything absolutely yeah yeah because i imagine you have a lot of dealings with maori obviously yeah well yeah do you go to um, marais and, and stuff and or do you give yeah. talks to like particular maori groups and stuff um, I, well, I'm a wahine Māori and so I operate in, in Māori spaces and in mainstream spaces in New Zealand. Um, I am involved in my hapu. I, you know, I, I'm not running things or anything, but I'm involved and try to stay aware of what's going on. There are lots of, there's a lot of work to be done when you get into the politics of Māori yeah, organisations. Yeah, because what, what, what would you say is a lot of the problems that you see personally? Ooh. Um, <laughs> oh. See, that's such a broad question. The two, the things that come to my mind. Because I, I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding on both sides. Like, say, Māori people might misunderstand other people and then, um, or other, well, let's say Pākehā in this case, mm-hmm. and Pākehā misunderstand Māori. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and as as someone who has a lot of Māori friends, mm-hmm. and I know my best friend's Māori, and then I have, <laughs> and I have um, a lot of Pākehā friends as well, and, you know, I hear both sides say things sometimes, and I'm like, hmm... So I think in general, all people need to um, be more understanding of where the others are coming from. Um, I think that non-Māori still have a very, very long way to go to understand the colonizing experience and the ongoing impacts of that. I think that it's and and the, ho- the whole subconscious bias thing, you know, white privilege, all of those things, those are real. And unless you are on the receiving end of those things, it's very easy to just think that they don't exist. It comes back to you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And unless, I think, unless you're shown that or you see it firsthand, yeah. it's very hard to put yourself oh, in absol- that perspective. Absolutely. But you get people, and that goes for anything, though. You get people who are so aware that they don't know what they don't know and are so open to learning and, you know, please correct me if, I, if I've missed something or got it wrong but then you get other people who are just like i mean i saw a situation recently where uh um, a wahine maori who i love and respect and is high up in acc um posted on linkedin a piece of research around tattoos and it was research done in canada and it found that uh, people who have got tattoos are more impulsive and less likely to think long term right and she is a woman who, like me, has a mokokoai on her face. And trust me, we don't do this impulsively. And we think long term about the impacts, not only of what we carry on our bodies, but of all of our actions and the responsibilities and obligations that we take on when we take on our mokokoai. And so she just, she labeled it racist research. Straight away, two middle-aged white men 
Well, one was obviously triggered by what what she said. I don't see that's racist. Even kind of straight away went, well, if I like reggae music, am I racist? Like it didn't even make any sense, but he just (laughs) didn't like that she called it racist research. Yeah, yeah. And straight away, another white man jumped to his rescue and said, yeah, you're not racist. In fact, I think her her ideas are weird. You know, and I'm like, oh, guys, like – have you even stopped to go, gee, I wonder why she called this racist? So it's like a defense mechanism. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But what happened was when a, when some of us tried to call them out on it, even very diplomatically going, hey, could you just consider this different way of looking at it? They still dug their heels in. Well, I think the problem is once you feel attacked, you <laughs> kind of go into fight or flight oh, mode. It's so you can't logically think straight and you start to react emotionally as opposed to logically. Yep, and that would be um, a, a good excuse for fast responses, but when it's the next day or the day after and their bodies have had time to process all that adrenaline and stuff, it becomes a choice to dig your heels in and to not be open to other people's opinions and well, to you, just keep yeah. telling them that you're wrong. Well, you kind of get yourself, you, yep. you charge yourself up so much. Yeah. Yeah, and you convince yourself of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... I have all kinds of um, thoughts about um, culture and, you know, my, my choice to take on my moko kawai 18 months ago was not an easy one. It's something that I wanted my whole life. I especially um, have hated my whole life that people didn't know that I was Māori because I'm so white, right? <laughs> and and so having to kind of justify that on certain occasions, um, yeah, having to be able to – I was in a taxi once in Wellington with a, a Pākehā driver and we were organising for him to pick me up at the end of the day. And he just kind of said, oh, um, and if I'm not available, I'll get you another white driver. And I just kind of like sat there and went, wait, what? And I actually kind of played back in my head what was the the brand of the of the taxi? Like was it called White Label Taxis or something? Like I couldn't – I just couldn't quite compute. Yeah. That, that he was making an assumption that – I would only be comfortable with a Pākehā driver. And I, it caught me so off guard. I've kicked myself ever since that I never, didn't say anything because it just took me a little while to process what he was actually saying. But that that pissed me off. Don't assume that I'm racist because I'm white and you're racist. <laughs> like, fuck. And so putting this on my face has many, many reasons and, and levels of meaning. But one of them was I don't want people to treat me like I'm white anymore. Like oh, right, so white. that's one of the reasons. That is absolutely one of the reasons. Like, I don't want them to treat me that the colour of my skin is the only thing that there is to me because actually I don't identify as just a Pākehā. I, I identify as So if somebody someone, asks you ethnically what you are, do you say you're Māori? I definitely say Māori. You say Māori. Um, I think in the past I used to, on forms and stuff, I'd tick both Māori and Pākehā because the world sees me as Pākehā. Well, before I got my moko kawai, the world, you know, I, I am a recipient of white privilege by the color of my skin. I just am. And I definitely am because when I travel with people of color, vis- visibly of color, they are more likely, I've seen it time and time again, they are more likely to get attention at the security checks than I am. They are more likely to get their bags checked when we leave the warehouse than I am. And my friends used to, uh, you know, my my friends of color, mostly Maori friends would be, I'd be the one they'd send to the chemist to get the cold meds. Because hmm. I would get the cold meds and they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to, they would get declined. So this white, I am a recipient of white privilege, as I you. If it's, uh, yeah, I'm wondering if it's conditioning. Like, I mean, because it's not something I can relate to, mm-hmm. you know, being a white man and all. I do think that, <laughs> like, because I grew up in a multicultural 
surroundings, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So I grew up around a lot of Maldives, Samoans, Indians and stuff, mm-hmm. which in some ways <clears throat> I'm really thankful that I was because I'm able to understand and relate to these cultures more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, when, like say if you grew up in China or India, where you're only surrounded by mm-hmm. one type of mm-hmm. culture, it can be very difficult and sometimes jarring if you say move to a multicultural society mm-hmm. and um, you, you not, might not necessarily ha- know how to relate or communicate with the with the pe- with the people there mm-hmm. and understand them. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's something that I think about a lot because I would be silly to deny that I am a recipient of white privilege because I, you know, so I, I guess that I'm able to see it through, you know, through lenses because of my experience. But I, I cannot deny that that's, that it's a thing, that, that white privilege is a thing. And um, I knew that by taking on my mokokoai, to some extent, I was rejecting that. So have, have there been so has there been changes in the way people treat you now since getting your moko? Um, look, I mean, has it been like very extreme or like very subtle? Mm-hmm. Or do you get how, how often do you get asked about it? Oh, not as often as I would like. I would love it if people ask, but they, people don't know if they're allowed to ask, and which I totally understand. Here's, in a nutshell, how has how have people responded? I get some micro um, expressions that people don't realize they're, they're showing out loud, some eye rolls and some scowls that I think that they just think is a thought in their head and they don't realize that their face is showing it. <laughs> Definitely get that. But those are absolutely the minority. In New Zealand, by far what I experience is this level of respect and deference and politeness and beautiful smiles from strangers because they think that it's beautiful, which is just just lovely. It's just really lovely to have a stranger just smile at you and and then beautiful, you know, comments telling you that it's beautiful, those kinds of things. Internationally, it's really different. In New York, people loved it and asked me about it all the time. Black men particularly loved it. I got a given, like, guy's number on the subway, which is not an experience I've ever had in my life, but many, many black people and black men telling me that it was just, you know, hot sexy, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and then in Canada, which is obviously much more white, um, people were very uncomfortable and didn't want to make eye contact like because I think that they wanted to stare, but staring's impolite, and so they would just look away. I know, I know in like Japan, for example, mm-hmm. tattoos are very, very frowned upon mm-hmm. because they are the, the Yakuza mm-hmm. have them. So okay. you're, not actually, you're not actually allowed to wear or have tattoos showing. Mm. Um, I think it's in saunas and stuff. I know like mm-hmm. the, the All Blacks... In Japan. Oh, really? Yeah, they have to cover up in the saunas and not show off any of their tattoos. I had no idea. Yeah. Mm. Not if you have, I, I don't know if you're planning to go to Japan at some point, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I thought I was going to have to marry a TSA agent in Texas because we pretty much got to second base. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and I do, I get you know, patted down more often now than I used to. Yeah. 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 So, because you, you lived in America for a while. I have lived in the States. Um, on two separate occasions. Once yeah. once as a teenager for a year, I went to high school in Chicago. My dad went to Northwestern University to a police management course. And then I did my master's degree. Oh, I trained as a high school teacher in Hawaii and I did my master's degree in Utah and had my son over there. And I've got family. I've got two sisters who um, live in the States and are married to Americans. Americans? Americans. Um, so, yeah, I've got strong family ties to to the states. Do you find there's uh, big differences between the writing and communication in the states versus here? I don't. No. It's very similar. I, 
I will get Americans in a training room with me who insist that it's very, very different. But my, I absolutely believe that it's different. It's very cultural and every state is very different. Oh, so I yes. don't think that they, they, they often generalize, but I disagree with the generalization, right? So I know a lot of plain language professionals in the United States. There's the Center for Plain Language, which was, um, instrumental in having some legislation passed in 2010 back in the good old days when Obama was still in there. We, we don't talk about the states these days. Um, <laughs> it's called the US Federal Plain Language Act or Plain Writing Act. And so they have legislation that says that their federal government documents that are intended for the public to read um, have to be written in plain language. So this is not some really like random um, thing that Shelley's making up. It's it's a real thing that's been around for a long time. Yep. The New York legislature recently extended their plain language law to have more coverage than it previously had had before. So the, it's it's a thing. The, centers, um, the, the Center for Plain Language um, that I have some involvement with, there are international conferences every year. And in in my opinion, the principles of plain language and what people respond to and the preference for plain language um, is the same in Western countries generally without without huge differentiation. That's interesting because obviously there are cultural course, differences between yeah. the states all, yeah. and New Zealand. Yeah. What's, what's some of the cultural differences you see in terms of <clears throat> mm. culture is in the states versus here? Hmm. No, I'm going to struggle with the, with the generalization. Well, obviously, it's different state to state. Yeah, because I will have, I'll have one person in a training room who says, oh, Americans write much more formally than this. And then I'll have another person in a different training room who'll be like, oh, no, Americans don't do any formality in their writing. Mm. So, it's, it's really hard. One of the things, because I've, I've only been to Seattle, mm -hmm. and I found when I went to Seattle that it was very, very different from how the media portray America. Mm-hmm. Like, it's Every, nothing like how America is portrayed. Well, think about, okay, New Zealand, little old New Zealand, right? Yeah. We've got Hamilton, we've got Auckland, an hour and a half apart. Yep. We are different. Yeah. Yep. I definitely agree because I'm originally from Auckland. And then you get one state within the United States that it takes six hours to drive across that one state. Yep. So, from town to town, you know, it's... It's I know, but we have this bad habit these, of, of putting things in boxes yep. and yep. generalizing. It's so American. Like, there is just an American way of being. Mm-hmm. American. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've covered a lot of ground. We have. It's been cool. Yeah. Um, now, I know you do a bit of, uh, you're all about empowerment for women. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, I think it's probably kind of come through in lots of the things that we've talked about. I guess, um, ultimately, and I just spoke about this yesterday at a conference, uh, the last seven years for me have been a, a lot about recognizing how much other people's perceptions influence my choices and or other people's expectations and my fears around what other people would think. You know, oh, I can't do this because it will upset this person or... or PC outrage. Yeah, yeah, those kinds of things. And, you know, I talk a lot about just giving fewer fucks. Yeah. Like each birthday I lose a few fucks. <laughs> And it's not that I, I don't give a fuck about anything. It's that I'm way more selective about what fucks I give. And there are certain people in the world whose opinions I care about. Are you on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Do you just blurt out anything on Twitter? I don't spend a whole, oh, yeah, yeah, I say whatever I want on Twitter. I need to follow you on Twitter. 
<laughs> I, I'm not as active as I'd like to be. Facebook is where I'm. Oh, no, LinkedIn, here's, I'm here's, here's the problem I find, right? Yeah. I think people sometimes on social media, mm-hmm. they, you know, they'll say anything, you know, they have their, they kind of have like an invisible force field yes. in some ways. Oh, so, I'm they protected. just say whatever. Yeah, they say whatever, but mm-hmm. then in person, they would not say some of the stuff that they say. That's true. Yeah. Yes. And so, I always find if I'm following someone on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, mm-hmm. and they say something, I'm thinking, eh. and if it's offensive, I'm thinking, would you say that in real life? I don't yeah. know if I, you know, and, yeah. and we try and base their personality based on that, but I don't think yeah, that's right. Or then we have that thing where even though we've interacted on social media, when we get face to face, we switch back into that polite mode because we're just establishing a relationship, even though on social media, we've kind of developed a relationship and got comfortable, but face to face, it's almost like starting over again. And so people yeah. switch back to that polite mode again. Yeah. I I try really consciously to be the same me on the inside as the outside. And so if I think, not not if I think it, I say it, that's not true, but- um, I try not to hold too much back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing this podcast has taught me is to be more objective though. Because mm-hmm. I've found that, you know, when you first meet someone, you don't usually, usually, not all the time, but you don't usually get into some real massive debate and <laughs> argument. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, which is easy to do. Like say someone like Mike Hosking or something, when he's interviewing someone, he'll be really condescending, talk over them all the time, real snarky. And I just wanted to make sure that I might know. Because you don't really do that when you first meet someone anyway. So, no. So, it's uh, obviously, it's trying to be respectful. Some people thrive on on conflict and challenging people. And yeah. some people really, you know. And, and some people are just trolling and they want to be devil's advocate yep. on everything. And then I'd say a, a fairly high majority of us are relatively conflict averse yeah. and we don't like fighting. Like, even if I don't agree with something. Mm. I might. I try not to react straight away. Mm. It's different with my partner, but it's <laughs> different. Um, but like, I try not to react uh, straight away, and then try and take some time and think about it, and be like, "Hmm," you know, mm. because it's very easy. Like as I said before, if, if you feel attacked, mm-hmm. then you can be like, "Rah," you know, yeah. and just go angry, oh, yeah. and you know, and you're not you're not trying to understand the person's perspective or anything. So I think that's part of maturity. Yeah, is being able to acknowledge. And recognize the difference between fact and emotion. You know, I'm having an emotional reaction to this. Oh, yeah. Let's investigate that. Why am I re- reacting emotionally? And then being able to choose how to appropriately respond mm. with some awareness. I think that that's part of growing up. Yeah. And, you know, I'm 45 and I'm still growing up. And I don't want to grow up too much because that fucking sounds boring. <laughs> but that's that's what you have to do. That's, <laughs> that's life. Have to. Exactly. Well, that's what I mean. It's societal yeah. pressures and... So conditioning and, and you stuff. asked me about empowering women and stuff and that that's what it's about for me it's about um i want women to step into our own power and that looks different for all of us but i would like for women and you know i, I wish this for my daughters i've got two daughters who are 15 and 16 one who's 24 who's just joined our family in the last few years um and if i had a wish for them it would be that they grow up to feel powerful in their yeah. world I do think New Zealand, uh, we're a bit more progressive when it comes yep. to female rights and uh, opportunities as opposed to some countries. I think as a generalization, we're pretty good as, as a country. Um, each woman's individual experience probably still has a whole lot. Oh, yeah, of course. Of yeah. course. A whole, whole long way to go. 
Yeah. Mm. It's, uh, but you can you can choose to focus on the negative or oh, yeah. focus no. on the positive. And, and I, think it's, I think it's um, important to acknowledge mm. what's good. Otherwise, you just uh, you just become bastardized and just hate everything and oh, well, have we a negative know, mindset. I, I, I've got a gratitude journal that I'm releasing shortly. Um, a, ho- a bunch of merchandise, actually. Some coffee cups that say, first we coffee, then we're badass. And um, and a, a, a gratitude journal called Gratitude, Joy and Badassery. Um, because we know... Um, we know about neuroplasticity, right? And we know that you can influence the way that your brain is wired or, or rewires itself. And one of the ways we can do that is by taking a few moments to be grateful each day. You literally can train your brain to be happier by by expressing some gratitude each day. Yeah, they've, yeah. They've, they've proven that. And um, so I guess that I'm on a little bit of a mission to have to share a little bit more joy and badassery with the world. Like I'm going to continue being a writing trainer. That's not going to stop. But I know that as I do that, there's I, I want people to be happy. I want people to feel powerful in their world. And and I think that requires a little bit of badassery because you have to just be a little bit willing to not keep everyone happy all the time. Well, you can't keep everyone happy. No, but we think we and can. And that's the problem. Like everybody wants to, you yes. know, you're worried about offending someone yes. all the time. Yeah. 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 Like everyone gets offended. Yeah. So that's my current journey at the moment is helping people become aware of, well, whose opinion actually matters. Um, and and how is that holding you back? What risk does it pose to you if that person dis- disapproves or is unhappy? And being able to make really consciously aware decisions about the actions that we take, the words that we use, the, whatever decisions we make in our lives based on who am I doing this for? Who's yeah. influencing this? Because I would like it if we, um, if women especially, felt powerful in our own world. Do, do, um, Females come to you, you know, with with these writing and courses and stuff, and then it can sometimes turn into a counselling session. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah, but I love that. I absolutely adore that, and it's usually over gin after training, and that just makes me so happy. <laughs> you just bring out the gin? Oh, we just go to a bar. Oh, like, yeah. I'm always in another town, and I'm like, have you got time for drinks? Let's go have drinks, and then yeah. they'll we'll talk about business. I mean, I love giving business advice. I've owned. I'm very clear that I've just got my experience to base that on. I'm not a business coach or anything like that. Um, but giving people, giving young women especially advice around, well, here's what worked for me. How about you try these things? You know, that just makes me so happy. Helping someone see where their thinking might be holding them back and where they could reframe or something. It just... And that's that's why I've just brought this joy and badassery thing into my brand because yeah. I'm not just a writing trainer. I'm a fucking good writing trainer and pretty damn entertaining. And, oh, yeah. Your website alone is entertaining. And there's more I've got to give as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, what's what's on the horizon? Is there anything you haven't done that you want to do in the future? Um, I'm definitely focusing more on speaking events at the moment, emceeing, stuff like that. I saw you were on TED Talks. Yeah, I did a TED Talk a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I want to do another one because all if I ever push play on that, all I can hear is my heavy breathing because <laughs> I was nervous. And I'm like, fuck, I want to do it again well, with, you're not without the heavy breathing. No, but this is not a TED Talk. Well, yeah, it's different because I've, I've, um, I've watched some people on TED Talks and then they come on here and it's completely different because obviously it's a speech. It's sculpted. Yeah, it's yeah. rehearsed. Yeah. And it needs to be, but you also need it to sound natural. And that's a real challenge. It is a real challenge. It was the hardest challenge. Two years ago, the year that I did that, it was by far my hardest challenge that year. Because it's, it's very hard to try and sound natural when something when is rehearsed. When it's rehearsed. Very, very hard. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's why I got a lot of admiration for actors. Yeah. Because yeah. they have to learn a script and rehearse mm-hmm. it. And then when they say it, they have to make it sound like yeah. it's normal. Yeah, love actors. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm focusing on um, more speaking gigs. Um and and emceeing and stuff like that. I'm I'm a keynote at the Dairy Women's Network conference in May, which I'm super excited about. Oh wow! Yeah, especially since my 16 year old daughter just got her first full time job on a dairy farm, so dairying, milking. Oh. And I was like, that's it happened on the same day actually that I got. So you're you're going to be there talking. You're not going to talk about dairy much, are you? I'm going to talk about joy and badassery. <laughs> is yeah. what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm going to wrap up the conference. I'm stoked about it. So they just approach you. Yeah. And you're just like, hey, would you mind doing this? Yeah. That's cool. It sounds like everything's going great for you. And oh, it's cool. I'm sure there'll be even more opportunities coming your way. It's it's a, a joy. And I that that's the thing. The more I've got ballsy and authentic, the more I've peeled back all those things that were holding me back, the better things get. Yeah. The more comes my way. That's cool. So I'm just going to keep doing it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, I might write, wrap up there unless there's something else no, you want to cover. No, that's plenty. No. So, um, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, where can they? When they? Where can they contact you? Oh, you can find me all over, all social media, or just my website, shellydavies.com. You just have to know that it's not Shelly with an E-Y. It's just Shelly with a Y. And Do people obvious, obviously oh, spell yeah. that wrong all the time, yeah. I'm guessing? Yeah, all the time. And they're like, I, I, your email's bouncing back. I'm like, hmm. So, Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y, and then Davies with an I-E-S at the end of it, .com or .co.nz. Either one of those will work. Yep. And, and then once you click on that link, you will, she will follow you forever because <laughs> <laughs> it will come up on your news feed every single time you scroll through Facebook. <laughs> I, n- I need some new Google ads because at the moment they're all like, be like Shelly, and I'm, I'm a bit sick of them. I need some new ones. They're good. Yep. Oh, well, people are about to get more when I, when I promote this. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. Until next time, stay safe. See you later.